0: This is Franz with Sailing in the Mediterranean Podcast. Welcome back, and thank you very much for tuning in. I've been looking at my stats, and I noticed that I have a lot of international listeners. Most of my listeners are from countries other than the United States, including Australia, Turkey, Belgium, Colombia. I have actually quite a few listeners in Colombia, and thank you very much for tuning in down there. And that's sort of what I want this podcast to be. This is something that is of an international appeal, I think, because what better dream than to be sailing in the Mediterranean? Or the South Pacific, for that matter, but that's not what this podcast is about. This week, I'm going to be rebroadcasting an episode that I did for my sister website, www.traveltradeexchange.com, and it basically follows my development from a dreamer to a sailor and how I ended up in the Mediterranean. I hope you find it enjoyable. There's a quote I like. It's by T.E. Lawrence. And it goes like this All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their mind wake up in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. It's from T.E. Lawrence, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And it was later in my life that I realized that there's a lot of truth to this quote. And I think this quote uh, motivated me to name my boat Sea Dream, spelled S-E-E Dream, D-R-E-A-M. Most of my travel stories are as a result of my, my adventures that I've had in my little boat. The purpose of this personal disclosure is to give you a background of my motivation for putting together this podcast series and the website and to encourage you to participate in my quest to gather Traveler's Tales. Well, I'm 57 years old. I was born in 1953 in, uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. My father was up there during the Korean conflict. Seems like America is always involved in one conflict or another. Uh but I didn't I don't remember anything of Alaska. Um I grew up in Logan, Utah, which is a small town. Uh, at least it was a small town when I grew up, it gets bigger as time goes on uh, in northern Utah. I went to high school in South Bend, Indiana. My father received a uh, an assistantship to go to Notre Dame University and study music. And so um, when I went into high school, I lived in South Bend for four years. And as soon as I was done with high school, I got out of the Midwest as quickly as possible. I grew up in the Mountain West, and that's where my heart is, and that's where I like to live. I come from a middle-class family. Money was never easy for our family. My mother was a schoolteacher, and my father had various jobs. Uh, he was an engineer. He was a music teacher. And later in life, he became a long-haul truck driver. When I was a young man, and I don't remember exactly the year, but I think I was—I uh, think I was around 13 or 14 years old. There, we always took the National Geographic, and I always loved looking through the National Geographic. But there was a young man; they chose to run a series on. His name was Robin Graham, and this this boy left at the age of 16 years old and sailed his boat around the world. And his travels were chronicled in the the National Geographic for several years while he undertook this adventure, and it captured my imagination. I wanted to do what he did, and that always stayed with me. Now, I grew up in Utah and Indiana, landlocked states, no opportunity to sail, but it captured my imagination, and I wanted to become a sailor. Well, that never left me. It always stayed with me. My dream never died. Later on, Robin Graham wrote a book called The Dove, and it's still in publication, I think, where he talks about his travels. In my family, uh, I had an uncle, and he worked for the government. I think it was the Department of Water Reclamation or the Agriculture Department. I'm not sure exactly what department it was. But he lived overseas, first of all, in Ethiopia uh, when Haile Selassie was in power in Addis Ababa. And then later on, he lived in Bangkok, and I had uh, three cousins f- from him and his wife. And at our Christmas gatherings, he would show slides and tell tales, and I was so envious. It was the first time I experienced travel envy, and it was a young man, because my family didn't travel. We didn't have the means to travel. So I was very jealous of the adventures my cousins were having, and he... He, he sparked my desire to travel, my curiosity of foreign countries. Now, when we come to the podcast, let me tell you about my um, my background. Because I lived in Indiana in my high school years, I was bored out of my mind. I grew up in Utah, and I was used to hiking and skiing and doing a lot of things in the outdoors. In Indiana, I didn't have those opportunities, but it created another opportunity for me, which turned out to be a wonderful experience. I joined a. Um, I was active in the Boy Scouts in uh, in Utah, and when I got older, I joined a uh, an Explorer post in South Bend, Indiana, which was sponsored by WSBT Radio and Television. And I had the opportunity of learning a little bit of about radio production and TV production. We had a weekly radio show we put on on the AM channel, and I always loved. I, I always loved the audio format. I like listening to stories on audio. I like listening to radio stories, radio productions that are stories. It fires the imagination. I remember years ago there used to be a series called Radio Mystery Theater, and I loved to listen to that when I was working out in my my garage. So I learned a little bit about audio, and that's probably why I'm doing this podcast is I, I like the spoken word. I enjoy the spoken word. I went to school at Utah State University. My summer job was a lifeguard in South Bend, Indiana, at a little outdoor lake called Pinhook Park. And we monitored the quality of the water daily, and at one point in time, the bacteria count got so high we had to close down the, the lake for a week. Well, during that week, I didn't want to sit, sit around. I, I, uh, I wanted to do something. So I decided to hitchhike out and see a friend of mine that was living in West Virginia at the time. I could have afforded to take a bus, but I didn't want to. I wanted to hitchhike. I wanted the adventure of not knowing what was coming at me. Because I think when you take risks, you live at a different level. To this day, I can remember every ride, every ride that took me to see him, I visited him for a day, and then I decided to go up to New York City, so I hitchhiked up to New york City and then I hitchhiked back down to West Virginia and then I hitchhiked back down to back to salt or back to South Bend Indiana in time to go back to work every one of those rides I remember and it's been oh, i don't know thirty years thirty five years since then thirty seven years actually thirty seven thirty eight years since then can you remember what you did 38 years ago? Can you remember any specific day 38 years ago? Most people can't, but I can remember every one of those conversations, the people that picked me up, and I I like that uncertainty. It drove my mother crazy. My father accepted it. He dropped me off at the toll road in South Bend. And so... That sort of sparked my imagination. The next year, one of my friends, Bill Wiebe, who was a childhood friend in Logan, Utah, asked me to drive him out to Wyoming so he could start his hitchhiking trip. And he hitchhiked from from Wyoming to New York, caught a flight over to Northern Africa. I think he started in Morocco, hitchhiked around Northern Africa, and then through Europe, and came back about a year later. I was so envious of him for being so footloose and fancy-free. I couldn't do that. I was on a quest to get done with college. And so I kept my nose to the grindstone and got through college. I graduated when I was 20 years old. I skipped a, I skipped a year in college, and I was too young to uh, take the CPA examination. I had studied economics and accounting. So I worked for uh, several companies uh until I was about 30 years old, various companies, and I did eventually pass a CPA examination and worked for a CPA firm and did not enjoy that work. It didn't last very long. I enjoyed the study of accounting. It's a language of business, but I didn't like the practice of accounting. I became a stockbroker and got married. But when I got married, or when I started dating my wife, I told my wife of my dream to become a sailor and to, to sail foreign foreign shores, distant shores, and she was supportive. She said that was great, like most wives do, and it turns out that she actually was very instrumental in me achieving my dream. I read every book I could find on sailing. I did everything I could do to prepare myself to become a sailor. I had never sailed. I didn't know what it was like, but I passed uh, my ham radio license so I'd be able to communicate when I was Overseas. This is before the easy access to communication that we have with cell phones now. I had read every book I could find. I took auxiliary coast guard courses, uh, still no real practical knowledge. Gather- I gathered wheel weights because I knew what I would do was build my own boat. Did I have any skills that would enable me to build my own boat? No, but I knew I could learn. I've never had any doubt that I could learn anything I wanted to learn. So I gathered wheel weights because I knew I'd need a lot of lead for the keel when I eventually built my boat. I studied various boat designs that I'd like to have, and then one day my wife came home um, from—I don't know if it was a book club or if it was a a friend's house or what it was—but she said, "You know, she she had a friend of a friend that was looking for a crew crew member on his sailboat on Great Salt Lake," and I jumped at the chance. His name was Mike Seedall. He became my mentor. Mike Seedall's still sailing here in Utah. So Mike and I, uh, and uh, I, I became a, a racing sailor. That's how I learned to ra- How I learned to sail was a racing sailor on the Great Salt Lake. And a lot of people may think, "Well, Great Salt Lake—that can't be serious racing." Well, the type of racing we do on Great Salt Lake was the type of type of racing or the type of sailing that is the most difficult sailing for sailors. It's either very light winds or very heavy winds. Either very strong winds or very weak winds. And the, and the strong winds, when they would hit, they would come off the west desert and just slam it and build the, the, way, the waves up to a, a very frothy wave. People that have never been seasick in their life will get seasick on the Great Salt Lake. It's very dense water. Uh, the waves are very square. Uh, they pound you and just pound you relentlessly. And so I sailed with Mike for many years, many, many years. And along the way... Uh, I eventually bought my Holland deck and I started building my boat. I bought my Holland deck in in 1985 from Sam Moore's company in Costa Mesa, California. I had it delivered to Salt Lake City, put it behind my house, built a shed around it. And then I took five years building my boat. I built it only in the winter because I, in the summer I was working on building a cabin. And remember, during this time I'm making the middle class income. My wife's a nurse. We never had a lot of income. So we never had the money to go out and buy a boat, but I knew I could save a lot of money by building my own boat. So I built my own boat and I did a great job and I'm very proud of it. And it's a boat that people are attracted to. It's a traditional boat. It's uh it's called a Bristol Channel Cutter, it's twenty eight feet on deck, thirty seven feet overall. It's listed uh, in a book called Best Boats by Frederick Mate. And it's an extremely seaworthy boat. And all the time I've been sailing, the boat has never been in doubt, only the crew. The boat's been a wonderful boat. So I took five years in building the boat. I launched it up in Bellingham, Washington in 1990. And I started sailing up in Bellingham, Washington. Sailed up there. Uh, and around Vancouver Island one time, up the inside passage and around the outside of Vancouver Island from the north to the south. I ha- I, I don't know what else I needed to do to prepare myself for what I really wanted to do, and that was to uh, do a transoceanic passage. And during this period of time, uh, a friend of mine, and it's interesting how coincidence, coincid- coincidences occur. Friend of mine in uh, Logan, Utah, had built a house for a guy by the name of Lynn Leisure. Uh, I love that name, Lynn Leisure. He'd started a company called South Pacific Yacht Charters in Rayatea, which was eventually sold to the Moorings. Moorings is a big worldwide charter company, but he was at the the very start of yacht chartering. And my friend Dave built a house for him, and part of the he he traded out uh a couple of weeks on his, on one of his boats in Raiatea this is in the French Polynesian islands near Tahiti for some of the work well Dave didn't really know how to sail so he asked me to come along so we wouldn't sail so we sailed uh we we did a two week charter trip in in Tahiti and then later on my wife and I took my parents and my sister and her husband and chartered a boat in Greece and uh, spent a week in Greece. So those were my two only overseas travels up until that point in time. A sea change occurred in 1996, either late 96 or early 97. I don't remember exactly what date that was. And it was a tragedy, but sometimes tragedies are what it takes to make people realize that they're mortal and start living life. I had two very close friends growing up, um, David Harris and John Williams in Logan, Utah. And my friend John Williams, we sort of drifted apart after college, and, you know, just, it just happens. But I got a call from Dave one t- one day, and he said uh, John was killed in an automobile accident. It's the same age as me. And so I went to his funeral. And they spent a small amount of time talking about what John had done with his life, but they spent a lot of time talking about what he wanted to do in his life. And it hit me. We don't know when the tapestry runs out. People put off living their dreams for the perfect time, and there's never a perfect time. I came back from that funeral and I told my wife that I was going to sail across the Atlantic that year. Or I didn't say the Atlantic, I said I was going to do a transoceanic passage. It was either going to be the Atlantic or the Pacific, and she could choose which direction I went. Now, this came as a real shock to her, and and uh, she did what most people would do, and she said, well, well, honey, that's fine. I really want to support you in this, this quest, this dream you have, but maybe it's not quite the right time now. Uh, at this time, I had uh, two daughters. I had twin daughters, or I have twin daughters. I still have them, but... Uh, they were about nine years old at the time. Actually, I think ten years old at the time. And my wife said, "Well, honey, um, someday, someday we'll do it. We'll, you know, just we'll just prepare for it and do it." And I said, "No, um, exactly. What do you mean by prepare?" She said, "Well, well when, when we're a little more settled." And I said, "No. What do you mean by more settled?" And she said, "Well, when we're when we're well set." And I said, "Well, define well set." Uh, I mean, I was a pretty good saver. I worked hard and I'd saved my money. I didn't waste my money. And um, I said, What do we need? And she couldn't define it, but I think this was what was uh, in her mind, she didn't think we were ready. So I put together a balance sheet. I'm an accountant. I put together a balance sheet. I took it home to her. I said, Okay, here we are. What do we need? Well, she agreed that if I got more life insurance that, okay, I can do it. And and really, I said I was going to do it whether she liked it or not, and she chose to support me. So she chose to support me, and I really appreciate that. So that started the adventure. That started what I was going to do. So to make a long short story short, uh, we brought the boat back down from Bellingham. Uh, from the northwest, the San Juan Islands, where I'd kept it for for the seven years that I was sailing up there, brought it back, did more work on the boat, prepared it for the passage, and then we hauled it over to Hampton, Virginia, and I sailed it across the Atlantic. And that's a whole other story, and I'm not going to go into that today. We've already gone about 20 minutes on this story. But my point is, and and this is one other thing I want to talk about, sometimes when you take a leap of faith, you have no idea where you're going to land. I was a stockbroker for a company called Piper Jaffrey at the time. And my clients, I told I was going to be doing this. I was going to take five months off and do this. And I just let everybody know. Of course, I wasn't paid during this period of time. But I made more money that year than I'd ever had before. And you know why? I think it was because people wanted to hear my story. They wanted to do business with me. They wanted to do something with somebody that wasn't, was willing to take a risk and, and, and uh, jump off the deep end, so to speak. Now, that wasn't the point of me doing this. The point of me doing that was to, to achieve my dream. Well, the boat's been in in the Mediterranean since 1997. My daughters came over that first year in 1997, and we spent three months sailing along the coast of Spain from, uh, from uh, Sevilla down the river through the Straits of Gibraltar, into Gibraltar, along the Costa del Sol, along the Costa Brava, got up as far as Alicante, and we went out to Ibiza on uh, and Formentera, and then we left the boat in Santa Pola for two years because I didn't go back on the boat the next year. I had taken five months off. Well, since then, I take two months off every year, and I go sail on my boat. My family joins me for two or three weeks, and my friends and clients join me for the other period of time. And I have a lot of stories to tell of people I've ran into, things I've done, random acts of kindness. Well, that was pretty much the end of that podcast. I went on to ask for listeners to submit their stories, but that is not the point of the sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. What I am looking for is to talk to people that have sailed in the Mediterranean that have services to offer other sailors that are traveling through the Mediterranean or looking to charter boats or looking for Marina information. By the way, I updated my website, www.medsailor.com. I included a full list of the marinas available in Turkey as well as books that I recommend that you might consider buying. If you click on the link on the webpage, I might get a tiny little sales commission and it doesn't cost you any more. So I'd appreciate it if you use that. Uh, thank you very much. Now I've got to think of what to do for next week. Bye.